No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Shep. Over the next hour, Hall of Famer Jerry Kramer reflects back on the life of his teammate and friend, Bart Starr who passed away at the age of 85. You know, I've never run into anybody quite this consistently good, and I don't believe it. I'm going to catch him one of these days. And I, I watched him for years, and he was perfect in every situation. And I finally said, you know, the guy is just a good guy, and he lives his life to please other people. And the co-founder of the Orlando Magic explains how his franchise forever changed the NBA draft lottery system. The biggest miracle was the next year, 93, when we had one out of 66 ping pong balls in that machine. And darn if it didn't happen again. To win that thing two years in a row when the odds were so against us, ooh, they were not happy. And thus, the Orlando rules were put into effect immediately. Plus, Hall of Fame baseball writer Peter Gannon on the life and legacy of Bill Buckner. Bill was a really special player. I mean, it's so sad to see most of the stories about his death, leading with, well, he's famous for the error, when he had a remarkable career and, I mean, 2,715 hits. He was a great young player with the Dodgers. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schatz. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to Basketball Hall of Famer Pat Williams, co-founder of the Orlando Magic, who last month announced his retirement after five decades in the game. But first, it's been a sad week on the landscape of sports with the deaths of two important figures in sports, the Hall of Fame quarterback Bart Starr, the MVP of the first two Super Bowls, and first baseman Bill Buckner, near Hall of Famer as a player in his long career with the Cubs and with the Dodgers and with the Red Sox, among many other teams. We'll be speaking with Peter Gammons about Bill Buckner's legacy later in the show. But first, we're joined by Bart Starr's teammate, his blocking right guard, his fellow Pro Football Hall of Famer, Jerry Kramer. Jerry, thank you for being with us. Jeremy, it's a pleasure being with you on almost every occasion. This this one is not that much fun. I I understand, Jerry. Thank you for being with us. I mean, you, you and Bart spent so much time together. Uh, you were so close. Uh, and, and when he died earlier this week, I was looking at your book, Instant Replay, and reading some of the things that you wrote about Bart at the time uh, when Instant Replay was written in 1967, 1968. And, and I noticed one passage in which you said that um, Bart raised his voice to the team. That was something that was very, very rare. In fact, in your entire career together, he only raised his voice once in a game, and he said something like, "Come on, Jerry!" And after the game, he apologized. <laughs> what, what, what kind of man was Bart Starr? Yeah, he was uh, about all the man there is, Jeremy. He uh, was a quiet guy to begin with, uh, exceptionally quiet in a group of rowdy, loud ball players. Uh, and so, in the early years. We didn't understand who Bart was and what he had in his backbone or his spine and his character. So uh, there was some confusion about him. In fact, Bart probably didn't start full t- 
time till his third or fourth year. We had four or five other quarterbacks during that same time. But I think I always have thought that one incident kind of opened the door to Bart Starr's character and what he was all about and what kind of um, strength he had in his mind and his body. There's a game against Chicago, which is our, our classic rivalry, of course. And uh, Bart had a tendency to throw the ball underneath a little bit. The coach wanted him to throw a couple long balls to get the safeties back a little bit. So he hauled off and threw a, a long pass down the right sideline. And my defensive tackle turned around and started watching the ball. I'm watching the ball. Bart's watching the ball. Bart's got his hands at his side, totally relaxed and totally um, unprepared for what's coming. And Bill was coming. So he takes about a five-yard charge and hits Bart in the mouth with a forearm, just a nasty blow, and knocks Bart back about five yards on his keister and said, that ought to take you, that ought to take care of you, star, you bleep, bleep, bleep. And Bart Starr got up and uh, said, bleep you, Bill George, we're coming after you. And I said, and looked over and he'd split his lip. Um, Bill had split Bart's lip up into his nose, his upper lip. And it was just flowing down his jersey. And I said, Bart, you better go get sewed up. You're bleeding like a stuck hog. He said, shut up and get in the huddle. I said, <laughs> yes, sir. Uh Who's to me? And uh, I got in the huddle, and he called a play, and uh, we went down the field six, seven, eight plays. Bart uh, bleeding all over everything, and uh, we scored. And Bart went to the sidelines with all the rest of us, and he la- they laid him down on the bench. Uh, at that time, we weren't that delicate about those kind of things, so they just sewed him up there on the bench. His upper lip, and the lip was split almost into the nose and took about 11 stitches. And uh, when the uh, defense came out, we went back in and Bart went back in. And um, he stonked a little bit funny with his lip all messed up, but uh, he didn't miss a play. (laughs) He, uh, yeah, and that moment uh, was crystallized in my mind and I, I thought, well, we don't have to worry about how tough Bart Starr is or whether he can take a lick. Uh, he's as tough as he needs to be. So he was he was at that moment, I think, in everybody's mind, a uh, a starter and a, and a guy you could depend on and a guy you wanted to go to war with. And there's another incident that um, Coach Lombardi had, you know, a hair trigger a little bit, and he'd jump on anybody at any moment and uh, – he jumped on Bart one time, jumped on me a number of times, you know, but uh, jumped on Bart, and uh, Bart went to the went to his office and said, look, Coach, I need to chat with you, which none of us would do except Bart. And uh, Coach said, what's up? And he said, well, Coach, you chewed me out in front of the guys, and then you apologized to me in privacy. If you want me to lead the guys, if you want me to be your quarterback, then don't chew me in front of them and chew me in privacy, and maybe it'll work better. So that's the kind of guy he was, and, and he was just such a, a good person, Jeremy. It's just it's hard to say how good he was and what he did, but he was 
it was very, it was so good. I didn't believe he was real. I just, uh, <laughs> there, there had to be something there that you did. We're speaking with Jerry Kramer, the Hall of Fame right guard who won five titles with the Packers and with his teammate and friend, the late Bart Starr in the 1960s. And I remember, uh, Jerry, speaking of, you know, how good he was, I think my dad used to tell me, um, you know, stories from you guys that, uh, I, I, I think Bart took it as his job in some ways to keep the young players away from the inf- the bad influences, the McGee's and the Hornings, you know, steer them down an- another path. <laughs> yes, he did. And, uh, <laughs> I, he was, he was such a consistently, appropriate person. He would have a, a breakfast with the ladies and um, luncheon uh, with the businessman and a beer that night with the guys. Uh, one or two, but that was it. But he would have what he was, you know, if the guys were having a beer, he'd have a beer. So I just, I said, no, this, you know, I've never run into anybody quite this consistently good. And I don't believe it. I'm going to catch him one of these days and I, I'll watch him. And Jeremy, I watched him, I watched him for years, um, just in, in every situation you can imagine. And he was perfect in every situation. And I finally said, you know, the guy is just a good guy. And he lives his life to please other people. And he it was so uh, comfortable with the fans, with everybody he was with, because he was comfortable with himself and he believed in himself and he was a good human being and good goodness seems to make you happy. It seems to be something about it that makes you comfortable with yourself and comfortable with the world and comfortable with those around you. So he was an exceptional person in that way. And he could, he could get a little angry and he could let it go a little bit, but uh, that, that was a good part of him, too. Jerry, of course, you're from northern Idaho, but you've lived for the last 50 years in the Boise area. And uh, that's where Bill Buckner chose to live after his playing career ended. Although he was a kid from northern California, from Napa, California, he, he was an outdoorsman, an avid outdoorsman like you. Um, and you got to know Bill Buckner as well over the years. Um, what were your thoughts when you heard that he had died on Monday? Well, and like a kick in the gut. Uh, Jeremy, it was just on top of Bart's death, uh, just a day or two apart. And it was, uh, I first met Bill, uh, at a, uh, function, a charity event, uh, humanitarian hall of fame actually is what it was. And, uh, uh, he said, Jerry, uh, I've been hunting ducks out by your old ranch and, uh, boy, there's a guy out there that's got all the ducks in the world. He's got a lot of corn and then. And you know, just a tremendous number of ducks, and everything around him is heading to his place. And I said, "Yeah, I know. That's my neighbor. Would you like to meet him?" He said, "I'd kill to meet him." So actually, Greg Obendorf was my friend, and I took him over to meet Greg, and they hunted together for the next ten years. I hunted with Bill. I hung out, golfed with him, and did charity events with him, and. Much like Bart, uh, kind of a quiet guy, but consistently uh, helping out. He just uh, couldn't do enough for the community, couldn't do enough for the people of Boise. Um, just a nice man. I uh, I really um, enjoyed his friendship and his company and always enjoyed being with him. We played quite a bit of golf 
together, and um, it was just a. I knew he was struggling. I knew he was having a problem, but I didn't think he was even close to passing on. So it was kind of a surprise and and really a kick in the gut. Well, Jerry, I know I know it's been a hard week and uh, losing your friends Bart Starr and Bill Buckner. We always appreciate your insights. Uh, I love you. Thank you again, Jerry, for coming on the show this week. I love you, Jeremy. And uh, always my pleasure to hear your voice. Thanks for having me on. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Perhaps there is not a single man anywhere in basketball history as closely associated with one franchise from its beginnings up until now than the man who joins us on The Sporting Life for this segment, Pat Williams, the co-founder, longtime senior executive with the Orlando Magic, who last week announced his retirement after a Hall of Fame career. Pat Williams joins us now. Pat, thanks for being with us. Jeremy, good to chat with you. I hope you're doing well, and I'm glad to hear from you. Pat, it's 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 always it's always great uh, getting a chance to speak with you. And I should say, you actually announced your retirement last month, not not earlier in May. Um, and you know, I think you said in the press conference at the time you retired, you're not you don't play shuffleboard, <laughs> you don't uh, you're not a golfer. You're not a fisherman, so 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 why walk away now, Pat? You're only seventy nine. Well, good point, Jeremy. Uh, I, I figured that it's important to get moving on the things that are important to me uh, that I couldn't do if I was, uh, you know, engaged with the magic on a daily basis. Uh, I've got a long list that are important. Uh, the most important one, Jeremy, is getting the. Pat Williams Leadership Library launched. Um, I'm a book collector, have been since I was seven, and uh, the total number now is about 30,000 books in my collection. Uh, we found a place to set up the library, plus all my uh, memorabilia from a, a life in sports, uh, the, the museum-type stuff. And so that's going to take an enormous amount of work, enormous amount of fundraising, but I think that really would, would be the piece of my legacy that I want to get established. So that that heads the list of things that i got to get on, and uh, there are probably about a dozen more. We're speaking with Pat Williams, longtime NBA executive, a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame, the author of literally dozens of books, not only the collector of tens of thousands of books, but the author of dozens of books. His most recent is Character Carved in Stone, the 12 core virtues of West Point that build leaders and produce success. Um, and before we talk about the book, Pat, you know, when, as I mentioned earlier, when people think about the Orlando Magic, they almost necessarily think about you as well. And when you got that franchise, you were one of the people instrumental, you were perhaps most instrumental in bringing that franchise to Orlando in the night, late 1980s. Um, why was Orlando back then such a long shot? Well, it was just the size of the market. Uh, I, I had been with the 76ers for 12 years, uh, including four trips to the finals and uh, and an NBA title in 83. Uh, I needed a new adventure. The ultimate adventure is uh, starting up your own team, if you can, as an expansion team. So I moved down here and joined up with some business leaders, some government leaders. Uh, but you've got to remember that uh, Orlando in uh, 86, 87, when we started, was really not much to look at. We we had to sell hard 
on the future. You know, you've got to look at this community in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years. All of that's come to fruition, by the way. But back in 86, 87, gosh, there was not much of a skyline. Uh, the airport wasn't much. Uh, no big convention center. No Universal Studios. Uh, no Animal Kingdom. I mean, we were uh, kind of a small Florida city, but we rallied the community, and the key was uh, 14,000 deposits. $100 each on season tickets, 14,000 commitments. That that got the league's attention, Germany. I think that was a huge part of why they had to really pay attention to us. Disney World, which had opened in the early 1970s, helped put Orlando, the area, on the map. Uh, Arnold Palmer helped put Orlando on the map. How did landing a major league franchise... Uh, contribute to the growth that we have seen over the last three decades in Central Florida, in the Orlando area in particular? Well, it's a good question, Jeremy, and I certainly, certainly uh, would not want to be listed uh, alongside one of my great heroes, Walt Disney, and another great hero, Arnold Palmer. But uh, when the Magic were granted a franchise and Orlando became a major league city, well, it was a big deal, real big deal. Suddenly, the city could look and say, we're a major league city. We've got a big league team. And it began to expand the horizons. I think the, the thought process began to expand. And since then, well, this city has just exploded. And, and sports-wise, uh, major league soccer uh, arrived a few years ago, men and women's. Uh, they, they did a beautiful job on the football stadium. I guess seven years ago now, eight years ago now, uh, this state-of-the-art arena was built, and uh, it, it just uh, continues. And if you were to have bet on a sports league, if you were to have bet on um, a city, a metropolitan area, back in the 80s and said 30 years from now, 30-plus years from now, you know, how is this bet? going to play out, you couldn't have done better than the NBA, getting an NBA franchise, or Orlando itself, which has seen uh, enormous growth, of course. Um, you know, what has it been like to see a franchise uh, you know, from germination all the way up to where it is now? What has it been like to spend half your life as part of that project? I'm very rewarding, uh, fulfilling. And I think as the years go on, have gone on, I think it becomes even more so. Back when we were in the middle of the fire uh, trying to get all this rolling, and you're not paying attention to legacy or what you're going to be thinking uh, decades down the road. But now, uh, looking back, it's, uh, it's extremely rewarding. Uh, I think the other thing that's rewarding, Jeremy, is just to see our prediction years ago about uh, where Orlando is going to be. 20 and 30 years from now. Uh, when I arrived here, we were the 23rd uh, media market. Uh, right now, we're the 18th media market uh, and, and, and rising. Uh, I was talking to a television executive the other day who, down here who said, in our seven-county area for our television station, there are 1,500 people a week moving into those seven counties. 
uh, 72 million visitors last year from around the world. Uh, some some amazing numbers, and uh, and it continues to grow. Uh, Orlando, you see, in the middle of the state, can grow in all four directions. We're not limited by by water on either either end or either side. So uh, the growth is going to continue. And uh, oh, I don't know. In ten years or so, Jeremy, we're probably going to be be Atlanta ish. So it's uh, if you like growth, it's fun to be here. If you don't. Well, go go, go uh, live up in the mountains somewhere. What was your reaction um, when you guys won the draft lottery in 1992 and with it the rights to draft a fellow named Shaquille O'Neal? Um, just unparalleled joy. Uh, there were um, 11 of us sitting there at that table. Uh, all 11 had a Shaq jersey made up in advance. <laughs> in, in their team's colors. Uh, I, I never will forget it. They, they had them in paper bags or cellophane bags under the table and just waiting to pull them out. Well, uh, none of them got pulled out except ours. Uh, let's call it the the, the Shaq miracle. Uh, but the biggest miracle was the next year, 93, when we had one out of 66 ping pong balls in that machine. And darn if it didn't happen again. <laughs> uh, the league, uh, Jeremy, I can tell you, was not happy. Uh, they were happy the year before for us. Uh, but to win that thing two years in a row when the odds were so against us, ooh, they were not happy. And thus, the Orlando rules were put into effect immediately so that there could never be that kind of a miracle again when the best team in the lottery ended up with the first pick. Uh, the rules are now such that it takes a trained MIT professor to try and explain it. <laughs> and it's getting more complicated all the time. Oh, it's impossible to explain. <laughs> I've sat there in that back room for three or four years, and I've seen it all. But if you ask me to explain how it works, I couldn't do it. Fortunately, <laughs> they've got a, a battery of experts there watching the whole thing, uh, so I trust them. But uh, 93 was... Uh, the uh, absolute miracle of miracles. That's how Petty Hardaway got here. Yeah. And for a period there, Jeremy, uh, uh, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96. I mean, we were, we were quite the show with uh, Shaq and Penny and Nick Anderson and Dennis Scott and Horace Grant. And, oh, that was, uh, that was quite a group. And, uh, brought a lot of joy to this community. No doubt. We're speaking with Pat Williams, Basketball Hall of Famer, retiring after four decades in the NBA, five decades in the NBA. And Pat, your new book, Character Carved in Stone, Core Virtues of West Point, 12 Core Virtues of West Point to Build Leaders and Produce Success. You served in the military. You're not a West Point man yourself, but you served seven years in the uh, in the U.S. Army, I believe. Um, well, what led you to writing this book? Well, a few years ago, I was invited to speak at West Point, Jeremy, and that was quite a treat to speak to the men and women sports teams up there. And afterwards, they gave me a tour of the campus, uh, which is a very moving experience. We ended up at a little park on the campus called Trophy Point. It looks out over the Hudson River. And um, I noticed in this park a series of benches, stone benches. I counted them. There were 12 of them. And upon closer examination, 
I noticed that uh, there was a word carved into the end of each bench. And I went to all the benches. There were 12 different words, uh, you know, uh, carved into these benches. And uh, I, I figured, gosh, there's got to be a backstory here. Well, there was the West Point class of 1934 on their 50th class reunion, 1984. Uh, they donated those benches to the school as a class gift. And uh, these soldiers who had served in World War Two in Korea, they selected these words based on their experiences uh, during those war years. And they, they wanted to pass those words along to future classes, future cadets, and uh, they did. And, and so uh, then my reaction was, well, boy, this is a well-kept secret. I'd never heard of this. I don't think many people had. And so we went to the publisher and said, here's the idea. We could do a chapter on each word. We'll find West Point graduates who best model that particular word. We'll ask Mike Krzyzewski to do the foreword, a West Point grad. Uh, all of the above, it all happened. And uh, the end result is this book. Coach K did do the foreword, and we found the right person for each of those words. And uh, the end result is this book, Character Carved in Stone. There's no doubt when Pat Williams puts his mind to something, it gets done uh, one of the most influential figures in the modern history of basketball. His newest book, as you just heard, is Character Carved in Stone. The 12 Core Virtues of West Point that Build, build Leaders and Produce Success. Pat, it's really always a pleasure having you on the show. We wish you the best in your future endeavors. Looking forward to seeing the 30,000-volume library as well. Uh, congratulations, sir, on a terrific career. Jeremy, it's so nice to hear from you. I follow you closely and admire all that you do as well. And I look forward to seeing you along the way. The great Pat Williams. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Jeremy. Take care now. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. There was the sad news Monday, Memorial Day, that Bill Buckner, the 69-year-old former major leaguer who spent so many productive seasons with the Dodgers and the Cubs and the Red Sox, winning a batting title, amassing more than 2,700 career hits, and of course, uh, his role in Game 6 of the 1986 World Series, perhaps the most famous, infamous error in baseball history. No one knows Bill Buckner's story. No one can put it into better context. No one has a greater appreciation of his complete and full legacy than the man who joins us now, the great baseball writer, Peter Gammons. Peter, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. Now, he, Bill was a really special player. I mean, it's so sad to see most of the stories about his death, leading with, well, he's famous for the error, when he had a remarkable career and I mean, 2,715 hits, but um, what gets overlooked a little bit and forgotten is that he was a great young player with the Dodgers. Of course, he and Bobby Valentine were 2-1 in the draft in 1968. They were supposed to be the two best recruits on USC's football team. Um, <laughs> but um, he, uh, he tore up his ankle in April of 1975, and he never walked right again. I mean, and... Back in, when he was with the Red Sox in, in 85, uh, um, 84, 85, uh, he, uh, I, those days I used to go out and 
go to the ballpark and about one o'clock in the afternoon and get dressed and go out and shag for BP, all the rest. And what always astounded me was that it was it would take about two hours to have this to all the stuff they had to do to his ankle so that he could play. And he played in such pain for so much of his career. There's no question he would have shot well past 3,000 hits uh, had he been healthy. And, you know, at that time, you know, we didn't have all the analytics. 3,000 hits, but you went to the Hall of Fame. And that injury cost him the Hall of Fame, but he still had a great career. And, I mean, that play with Bookie Wilson, it, it, it summed up his personality, which is, and I'm not the only one to say this. I know Bobby Valentine's always said it. He might be the most competitive person uh, anyone who ever knew him ever ever met. And on that ball, so Bookie, he's got great night at third. Bookie, is, is, uh, um, Bookie hits the top ground ball down the first. He has no chance to be able to get him out. But he sees out of the corner of his eye that Bob Stanley is delayed on the mound. He's not going to be able to get the first. So Butler tried to charge, scoop it, and then dive for the bag. And, of course, the ball went by him. It took a little bounce of a hop and went by him, and, and, and Ray Knight scored. But it was his never, I'm just not going to eat the ball and hold Ray Knight at third. I'm going to make that play and get out of the inning. And it's just, that's who he was. When he and Valentine were at um, USC, they still went and were roommates at SC. Um, and, um, yeah, cause they were, they were in the, I believe they were in the football dorm or something like that. And, um, they, uh, they would go out and work out every day, but they would race every day. Bobby Valentine could fly. Oh, until he got hurt. I think he was playing a fraternity football game where he messed up before what happened to him in the major leagues, lost a lot of his speed. I, 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 I think so, but they would go out at every time. Valentine beat him every race they ever ran. <laughs> But every time, Buck would say, uh, okay, well, uh, we'll be back here tomorrow, and this won't happen again. I'll, I'll beat you tomorrow. And he believed it. And that's just the way he was. I mean, there was a time in the minor leagues when Buckner, Valentine, and Davey Lopes collided on a fly ball in short right field. And um, so uh, he hurt his jaw. And they took x-rays of him two days later and found he had a broken jaw. And so he'd already played two games with a broken jaw. So the Dodgers told Tommy Lasorda, his manager, um, don't play this guy for another month. He missed one game and was back in the lineup. Broken jaw at all. And that's just who he was. I know if if you sat Valentine down on the couch, he could probably tell hours of stories about him and all the crazy things he did as a a competitor. But um, And he was – it was – yeah, somebody said to me the other day, well, is that your main memory? I said, no, you know what? He came back to Boston in 1990. The Red Sox let him go. He went to the Angels and then the Royals. And he came back to the Red Sox in 1990. And I was sitting behind home plate uh, with a scout friend of mine. And um, he was uh, he hit a ball against the Angels to right field up into that corner in right field, a fly ball went over Claudel Washington's head. And the that's that low fence, and it short-hopped that fence. But Claudel couldn't stop. And he over that over the fence and got stuck underneath the seat. And the ball rolled back, 
And I said to uh, Gordon Lake, my friend sitting next to me, I said, this is inside the park home run. He said, oh. I said, I told him, look up. And Dante Bichette in center field was just standing there with his arms crossed watching him play. There wasn't anybody to go get the ball. Claudel was still stuck underneath the seat. So Buckner limped around the bases and dove across home plate for, I believe, it was his last hit in the major leagues. It must But that's my fondest memory of that's who he is. No matter how torn up his ankle was, how old he was, he still was going to force his way around the bases to score the run. We're speaking with the great Peter Gammons about the great Bill Buckner, who died this week at the age of 69 of Louis body dementia. And, and, and Peter, I, I got to say, I mean, I got to know Bill Buckner a little bit later in life. We did stories on the 20th anniversary of uh, 86 and the 25th anniversary. He was so gracious. He was a man of so much honor and so much dignity. And he had... Um, you know, such a big reputation in the game, but I was surprised by just how big the reaction was this week to his death. And it's because it's such a rich story and it's such a poignant story. And, and there's something, of course, sad or unfortunate about such a great player, um, associated with that moment in particular. How do you try to frame the legacy of Bill Buckner? Well, I thought that the fans in Boston did very well when the Red Sox brought him back. Uh, in um, 2008. It was opening day. They were celebrating the championship of 2007. But out from uh, the, the opening in the left field wall came Bill Buckner. They introduced him and he came, uh, uh, he, he walked forward to, to throw, throw the first pitch. Um, and the ballpark stood. It was just a, a deafening um, applause. For him, and he broke down and cried as he was coming in, and uh, it was a tremendous Fenway moment. I mean, they were the, the, Bill Russell was there, Bobby Orr was there, um, you know, it's, uh, Red Sox heroes from different periods. I think Yaz was there, and and uh, but there was this moment of, you know, hey, he's still he was so great for them for the two years, and you know, the one thing that they would all say, and John McNamara, you know, was criticized for not putting Dave Stapleton in at first base, but um, Buckner was so much a part of that 86 team um, that came back and beat the Angels. Uh, they were down 3-1 uh, to one at one point in that series and came back on the, uh, and won it. And then he was such a part of the World Series team that uh, Dave Stapleton was wonderful, but there was something really special about Bill Buckner. When you were around him in the clubhouse, I could, Two thirty in the afternoon, and listen to his stories and realize what he was like. He was so much a part. McNamara, forever in my mind, is remembered as doing the right thing because that was how much respect Buckner had, no matter whether it was Dwight Evans or or um, Jim Rice or whoever. Um, they he was regarded as just um, he, he had the, he had the presence of a great player, and they knew. It was almost impossible for him to go out every day. I mean, people used to say, how in the world does this guy go out and play in, in the field at first base? And he played pretty well. And, you know, it was just, I remember Dwight Evans one day saying to somebody, it's, you know, some people have greater wills than others. And he was one of them. Peter Gammons, the Hall of Fame baseball writer on the great Bill Buckner, died this week at the age of 69. Peter, it means a lot to us that you come on and share your memories of Bill Buckner. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I just wish he had those 285 hits.
and so we can, so we can look at this plaque in Cooperstown. That's right. That's right. Peter Gammons. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. Tune in again next weekend. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern time.